Dear Lord, thank you so much, Father, for the glorious day you gave us. Father, we thank you that uh, that day included an opportunity to be in your word. For each of us, Father, that uh, was the thing we sought as we made our way here tonight. But Father, you sought for us to be in your word long before we turned toward it. And in fact, Father, as you penned the words that we will study even tonight, many, many thousands of years ago even, Father, we uh, know you had us in mind along with all your children. And we pray, Father, that we would come with a heart equally devoted to your truth, a heart, Father, equally committed to understanding it and to living it out uh, with the energy and the effort we might bring to that task. Father, we would pray we could, in some small way, try to equal the effort you put into providing us this word into the many men throughout the ages who have put it to paper and then protected it and delivered it to us even now. Father, give us a a heart to appreciate the significance of the word of the Creator delivered to us for our benefit so that when we hear it, Father, we will not take it just as another source of truth, another option for truth, Father, but as what it is, the only truth, the, the truth above all else. Father, I praise you that you have brought men and women here who are of like mind and desire to study. I praise you for the time I had to study and in preparation for tonight. And I ask that the Holy Spirit would guide my teaching and guide the speech of all of us here and teach us, Father, as only He can, so that we would know what You have ready for us in Your Word. We praise You and thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. well as always, let's uh, take just a moment or two as we begin the teaching tonight to kind of ease back into the place we were last. For those of you who are here, you remember last time we taught we were at the end of chapter 13, which maybe second only to the crucifixion itself, is the climax of the Gospel. In that, it is the moment where we see Jesus uh, effectively confirm the rejection of the nation of Israel, which he recognizes at the end of chapter 13. Israel had lost their opportunity. From this point forward, in the Gospel record, in Luke's Gospel, we, we now exist in a state different than where we were prior. We now e- We now exist with Jesus and with the disciples in a time and in a place in the nation of Israel where his mission no longer includes the offering of the kingdom to the men and women of that day in a physical way, in the real physical sense of God's kingdom on earth. That moment now will have to wait. And as we now know, looking back, it's waited for 2,000 years plus and we continue to wait. But it is no less real, no less certain. It is simply yet to be. And now that Luke has given us this dramatic term, where does he go next? Where do we go next? Where would Jesus go next if the offer of the kingdom has effectively been withdrawn? What's his purpose now? Why not walk to the cross tomorrow, as it were, and be done with it? Why is there still literally 50% of the gospel, of Luke's written gospel, yet to go? Well, there's still quite a few chapters remaining, and they form essentially the teaching that Christ now needs to provide to the disciples on the one hand, and then secondly, they provide an opportunity for continued witness against the unbelieving nation that has rejected him. And the lens, if you will, the lens of Luke's Gospel is going to narrow considerably over the next series of chapters, and time is going to slow. And by that I mean if you understand Jesus' ministry on earth to be roughly three years, from the time his ministry begins with the anointing of the Holy Spirit to the point at which he dies on the cross, 
is resurrected, walks the earth, and is finally glorified and ascends to the Father. If you count that time as roughly three years, we are mere months away from his crucifixion at the point of chapter 14 in Luke's Gospel. We can't pinpoint it specifically. But it's clear enough that as he walks toward Jerusalem, he's not that far away from the moment when he enters the city. So if we've gone halfway through the Gospel, and yet we're down to the last few months of the time Jesus will spend on earth, then it's clear enough that the timeline has to condense. We have to, or has to expand rather. It has to slow down. We now are at a point where Luke's Gospel takes a very narrow, very slow pace. So the lessons in these following chapters are going to be especially relevant for us today because they are effectively Jesus' parting instruction to the disciples themselves knowing that He's going to the cross to die. Knowing that His mission now is focused on the cross. And as a Christian today, therefore, we ought to pay particular attention to the words He leaves with His disciples in sight of the cross. So, it's not a coincidence, it's not merely a decision of the author, that from this point forward, you'll see increasingly parable after parable after parable. If you studied with me as we went through the first 12 chapters of Luke, you'll note we went, we've covered parables, but you'll also note they came sporadically. If you know anything about Luke's Gospel, though, and if, even if you don't, if you just page through the next series of chapters, you'll notice it is packed, jam-packed with uh, parables, almost exclusively parables, almost to the end to the point where he reaches Jerusalem. And there's good reason for this. The primary reason is because he has two audiences with two different purposes. On the one hand, he has the disciples who need the education, the instruction, the bringing up in the knowledge of what they're going to be sent out to do. And the parables form excellent teaching tools for that purpose. But they have a secondary purpose. That secondary purpose is they obscure the truth from those for whom it's not meant. And as we've said already, the leaders of the nation of Israel and the people in general who have rejected him no longer are audience for his teaching. And so for them, all they will hear is parables. And you, you may remember out of uh, both Luke and out of Matthew, Jesus' statement in response to the disciples when they ask him, why do you keep teaching in parables? He says, for you it has been granted to know these things, but not for them. Well, let's look at how Luke now moves forward in chapter 14. And as a, in fact, as a passing note here, like we said about chapter 13, uh, the first half of this chapter, as it was in chapter 13, completely unique to Luke. No cross-references with the other Gospels. So we're going to be studying tonight exclusively material that you can't find in the other Gospels. Luke alone chooses to record these events. So let's look at Luke's narrative as we move forward, beginning in chapter 14, verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisee, uh, Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. We'll pause here. Let's take a moment to ex explore the circumstances we're looking at here at the beginning of chapter 14. This is a moment, yet again, where Luke records a time where Jesus has accepted an invitation to come into a Pharisee's home and eat. This is not the first time it's happened. If you go back a few chapters in Luke, you'll see an earlier event with a similar setting. And like we've learned in the past, like we learned when we studied that first, that first incident in Luke, any time the Pharisees offered Jesus the opportunity to come in and eat under these circumstances, the atmosphere was not cordial, to say the least, and the purposes here were not benign. The Pharisees had two primary purposes in extending such an invitation to Jesus. First, they enjoyed portraying themselves to the crowds as generous 
and hospitable, especially towards someone as popular with the crowds as Jesus. So it was an attempt to win the favor of the crowds by virtue of showing favor to somebody they liked. Secondly, they hoped to find an opportunity to trap Jesus in some way, in a way that was worthy of punishment under the law. So the idea here is the closer I get to him, the more I interact with him, I have a better chance of trapping him in doing something wrong according to the Jewish law, and by that they could accuse him and hopefully discredit him. Look at how Luke begins in in verse 1. He says, The Pharisees and the lawyers were watching Jesus closely. The word watching here, paratereo, paratereo. It means literally observing scrupulously. The implication here is with an eye toward looking for a mistake, trying to catch him. And Jesus, by the way, he wasn't accepting these invitations merely for the sake of a free meal. If it's true enough that the Pharisees didn't have honest intentions, well, then we should also agree that Jesus wasn't coming into this blind and naive. He understood exactly what was going on, and yet he still accepted the invitation. Their dishonest motives were not reason enough for him to say no to their invitation. Even more interestingly, though, he would purposefully walk into their traps. In other words, he didn't just come for the meal. Whatever trap they had orchestrated as a part of the meal, he walked headlong into, obviously knowing what they were doing. He didn't avoid the trap, in other words. And yet, he never committed any sin so as to give them an opportunity to make the accusation they hoped to make. And what he did instead was he would use this confrontation as an opportunity to point out their hypocrisy and to point out their sin. So, let's look at what he does here in that regard. Look at verse 2. Luke, and as I said, Luke alone, records that Jesus here is confronted by this man with dropsy. Now, the text doesn't say this specifically, but I think the language here that Luke uses strongly suggests that this man was placed in front of Jesus by the Pharisees specifically for the purpose of trapping him. First, I want you to note how Luke says in the language of the text, there in front of Jesus was a man. In the original Greek, it actually has a sense to it like the man just appears. Not to say he literally did. It's a figure of speech. But it's, it's intended to suggest there's a conspicuous nature to the fact that this man is sitting right in front of Jesus. Remember, it's a table. They're eating. And it's like a, a host as he assigns seats to the guests and puts the little name tents in front. I mean, that's not literally what happened here, of course. But in the same idea, the host has specifically said, Jesus, you sit here and, oh, here's this man with dropsy right in front of him. And that's what Jesus is confronted with as he sits down to eat. By the way, dropsy is an antiquated term for a condition we call edema today. Edema really is just a swelling of tissues due to fluid retention, usually in the extremities, and it can be caused by a variety of things, malfunctioning lymph system, heart failure, kidney failure. It's basically your body starts to fill up with fluid and you swell as a result. So he's, this man has edema. It could be fatal, obviously. It would be a condition that was debilitating and embarrassing in public. And in the day of Jesus, in the day of the Pharisees, they had come, the culture had come to believe that anyone with this condition was being judged by God for some kind of immorality in their life. So if you walked around with dropsy, you weren't just seen as someone who had an unfortunate condition, you were seen as someone who was getting what they deserved for some kind of immorality, and obviously was something that you're hiding, and God knew about it, and so he's punishing you over it. So what that meant, of course, was the, the condition received little or no sympathy from the people. Next thing to note. Jesus says this is a Sabbath meal in a home, which means the Pharisees would not normally have opened up their home for a Sabbath meal to a man who is seen by the culture as immoral. They never would have done this normally, 
which only adds to the conclusion that this man has been placed there specifically for the purpose of trapping Jesus, of, of inciting Jesus to heal him, as if that's a bad thing. The Pharisees, I would argue here, have basically set up this entire moment specifically for the purpose of capturing Jesus. It, it, it is not their tendency to do any of the things that are going on here normally. So how does Jesus react? Well, he begins, as he often did in situations like this, he asks a question of his would-be accusers. And he asks them specifically, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, the question's simple enough. There's nothing very complex about the question. He asks them, can you heal on, uh, on the Sabbath or not? And had anyone else, had any other person you can think of in that day, sat at that same table and asked that same question of those same people, the Pharisees wouldn't have hesitated to answer that question, would they? I mean, they knew the answer. They've been saying the answer already. In fact, they've already said in the past, it's not lawful. We have texts that we've studied already in both Luke, and if you go looking at cross-references in Matthew, there's multiple occasions where the Pharisees have all but accused Jesus of healing on the Sabbath as if that's a crime. So in their mind, there's no doubt they answer the question. And yet they don't answer. As you see in the text, they remain silent, which is a curious thing when you know that they know the answer. And this is, after all, what they placed him there to do, to heal on the Sabbath. Why didn't they answer? Well, the safest answer, probably, the, the most obvious answer I would give you is they're intimidated by him. They're intimidated by the very fact that he's stepped into the trap and now challenges them on that point. You know, one of the things about a trap is it doesn't work too well if the prey knows it's there, does it? And here's the prey, effectively, acknowledging the trap even before he goes about doing what he's going to do. Remember, they haven't said, here's a man, are you going to heal him? They haven't said anything. He just looks at the man and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they all know immediately that he's understood what they've tried to do. And they don't answer him. Now, had they answered the question, let's consider what they might have said. Had they said, no, it's not lawful, then they would have known Jesus as a teacher and as someone who's clearly proven his knowledge of the law and of his uh, 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 wisdom, of the clarity of his teaching, they would have expected him to do the natural thing under those circumstances, and that is demand support for that conclusion. If they said, no, it's not lawful, he would have said, show me where in the law it's not lawful. Support that conclusion for me out of the law. And there is no direct reference in the law to support that conclusion. There is nowhere you can go in the law that says you can't heal on the Sabbath. What they had done, of course, was they had performed or they had uh, added rules of their own liking to the law for the purpose of burdening the people. This is what Jesus refers to when he says that they have taken the law and they've made it a yoke around the neck of the people, burdening them with things that were never intended by God in the first place. And so having seen Jesus' knowledge and command of the Scripture, they dared not invite a confrontation in that moment with him over the legalities of the Sabbath. Because remember, if they had done that and had lost that confrontation, in other words, if he had proven them to be wrong on that point, then the trap falls apart, obviously. Now they have nothing to accuse him with. Never mind the fact that they don't want to lose face. They don't want to lose credibility. So they don't challenge him at all. They don't say anything. And just for the sake of discussion, if, on the other hand, they had said, yes, it's lawful to heal, then, of course, they automatically lose their opportunity to accuse him. So the only safe approach here was to be quiet. So when they don't answer him, Jesus does the right thing, and he heals the man. And just in passing, consider how dramatic a moment that would have been. You know, it's one thing to heal somebody with a demon. You know, and dramatic enough, obviously, for any of us, it would be a very awe-inspiring moment. But even after it's over, the man probably or the woman would look more or less like they did even before, except now their behavior has settled down, right? Here we're talking about something very different. 
We're talking about somebody whose whole physical appearance, not just a hand, not just a part of them, their whole body, in a blink of an eye maybe, has changed. Can you imagine how dramatic that would have been? How much the Pharisees, even in their disgust and anger, would have marveled in the moment at what they just saw? I'm not even sure if they could have contained it. Wouldn't that have been interesting to watch? Men who didn't want to show their amazement, yet almost unable to control it, at least I imagine it that way. Then Jesus does something very interesting. At the moment he heals the man, the text says, in a very passing way, he says, he sent the man away. He sent the man away. You have to presume a few things here. You have to presume this took place probably before the meal even began. And I say that because of what will follow here in the text. In the next series of verses, it's apparent they haven't started eating yet. So before the meal has begun, this whole confrontation takes place. So if the man's been invited to eat, why would you make him leave before the meal is served? He dismisses the man, though, and I think the effect here is that Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, I know you brought him here, this man here merely as a pawn for your game and for your attack against me. It has nothing to do with your true desire to fellowship with him over a meal. So why don't we just get him out of the picture and let's get down to business, you and I. I healed him, now go away. This ruse is over. And not against the man, obviously, not because Jesus held anything against the man. He was a pawn, as I said. But because he wants to make clear to the Pharisees, this is between you and me. This is not between us and this man. And in doing so, he highlights the fact that the Pharisees have no real interest in this man's company, which, by the way, only adds to their hypocrisy, only builds a stronger case against them. And then the man leaves, and Jesus turns his attention back to the Pharisees. Look what Luke records next in chapter 14, verse 5. He says to them, which one of you will have an ox, or sorry, a son or an ox, fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Consider that for the moment we've seen no conversation coming from the Pharisees. This has been a one-way conversation. We've seen Jesus challenge them with a question. We've heard silence. We've seen a heal the man. We hear of no response. Then we see him ask this question of them, and again, none of them could make a reply, we're told. They're stunned into silence. They're intimidated into silence. And Jesus challenges the Pharisees here in a way that mirrors a similar challenge you see recorded in Matthew. It's not the same event in Matthew. It's a different event under similar circumstances. And he challenges them, them here in the same way that he does in Matthew. This occurs in Matthew chapter 12. In chapter 12 of Matthew, this is what Jesus says. This is what Matthew records. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You find that in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 12. But what I'm emphasizing there by making that cross-reference is, look at Jesus' own conclusion out of a very similar set of circumstances. He himself comes to the conclusion that he's rhetorically been asking these men, is it lawful? Wouldn't you do this for your own son or ox? In Matthew's account, he says this, So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. As Matthew records this incident, he gives us this conclusion. And we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the Sabbath was given by God for men so that they might benefit first from earthly rest. That's obvious enough from the text that we know in Exodus chapter 20. But that's not its most important reason. That is not its primary reason for existing. The mere fact of giving men physical rest is not the first and primary reason that God gave the Sabbath. Scripture makes clear, you can find this particularly in the book of Hebrews, 
The Sabbath day was given to men so that they might understand it as a shadow, as a picture. And a picture of what? A picture of Christ Himself, of the Savior, the One who was to become our spiritual rest. And just as we rest on a physical day of the week as a shadow, we now rest permanently, eternally, in the work of Christ on the cross such that we never return to work ourselves. Work in the sense of working our way to heaven. Working for God's pleasure or for our own salvation. If that were even possible, we no longer bear that burden, for we now rest in the work of Christ on the cross. He is our Sabbath. Which is why, as a Christian, we don't have an obligation under Scripture to observe a Sabbath in the way that Jews did. In the sense of one day a week, absolutely dedicated, never can vary, never can do anything but rest. That, that, that principle doesn't exist for a, 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 a Christian in the way it did for a Jew. That is not to say we shouldn't be in church on a Sunday. There's other scripture to indicate the importance of being in a gathering of believers on a regular basis. But it is to say we don't live under a law that makes a day of the week now binding for us in rest. Because as Hebrews points out, once the, sh- once the real thing has come, we don't need the shadow anymore. Once we have the Savior for whom the shadow was a prophetic view of, we don't need to go back to the shadow. And, and in real life, the same can be said, right? Once I see, when I see a shadow, I know what it is because it reminds me of the real thing. I see somebody's shadow coming around the corner. I recognize the outline. I say, oh, that's so-and-so. Once I see them, though, do I keep talking to their shadow? Once they're in view, I start talking to them. The principle in Scripture is exactly the same. Once a shadow has been fulfilled with the real thing, we dismiss the shadow, for we are now honoring the lesser, not the greater. We go to church on Sunday for reasons that have nothing to do with the fact that it is a Sabbath. Why I'm pointing all this out is to say that when Jesus says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, he's illustrating a very important purpose here. The Sabbath is associated with good purposes. God gave it for good purposes. Remember? He says the Sabbath was given to men by God for the benefit of men, and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He mentions that earlier in Luke. What Jesus is pointing out there, and what I want to point out here is, The Sabbath came for good reasons. Reasons. Physical rest, yes. A shadow of Christ, yes. Ultimately, though, Jesus concludes that doing good in any form, doing true spiritual good in any form, cannot be held to be inconsistent with God's purposes for giving the Sabbath in the first place. If you name a a spiritual goodness of some kind, then that cannot be by definition in violation of the Sabbath itself, which was given for good purpose to men. And what Jesus is pointing out here is, can, can you fairly construe picking up a body out of a well to be work? Absolutely you can. But it's not work that violates the purpose of the, of the Sabbath because it is a good purpose and it cannot be in violation for, with a Sabbath that was itself given for good purpose to men. You can't have a good thing make a, another good thing bad. And what he's pointing out to these men is you have done that, though, by your rules. By your rules, you've now made the good men would do with their hearts an evil thing, if it were possible, because they choose to do it on a day given to men for good reasons. Doing something that would be good has suddenly become evil in their definition, merely because it was done on a day of the week, which itself was given for good purpose. He says you cannot have that held to be true. And his example illustrates that not only are the Pharisees distorting their perspectives of the law, but they're also hypocritical because he says, you yourselves would get your own son out of a well. You yourselves would pull your own animal out of a well if it were you. Highlighting that they themselves don't even 
uh, restrict themselves from doing good when they need to on the day of the Sabbath. And yet they would hold that burden over somebody else in hypocrisy. And of course, the Pharisees could make no reply to this logic. Because there is none. It's truth being spoken by God himself. And Jesus disarmed them with this teaching. They could not turn his healing, therefore, into cause for accusation. And that's the conclusion to make from these series of verses. That though they set up the trap for him to do exactly what he did do, they couldn't, in the end, use it as a means of accusation because in the course of their discussion, he was able to show them that it wasn't, in fact, against the law. It could not be held against him. That, of course, that doesn't mean they aren't equally interested in destroying him in some new way. In fact, if anything, it only increased their motivation to do that. It just meant they couldn't use this moment to do it. Now look, as Luke moves forward into a new uh, moment that occurs during this same Sabbath dinner. Luke 14, verse 7, he says, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when you, when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As the text continues from verse 7 on, I think it's obvious here that this event occurs during the same Sabbath meal that began the beginning of the chapter. But what's curious here is how Luke stitches together these two events. Remember, Scripture is not capricious. God didn't just decide to sprinkle out you know, a series of events for your amusement. These are purposefully chosen by Luke to reflect a certain issue or to illustrate a certain point or to build a certain understanding in our minds. So it's up to us to try to stitch this together as we study through the chapter. Giving you the whole purpose and perspective on why these were chosen can't really occur until we get to the end of the chapter. So I can't give you the whole answer tonight. But we'll begin to build that understanding a little bit. As the meal begins, Jesus observes something curious going on around him. And we're told as he looks around, he sees some of the guests beginning to pick out where they're going to sit around this table. And it's specifically the case that they're picking out places of honor by virtue of how they select their seat. And we need to understand this custom a little bit. In Jesus' day, an important meal of this kind, and this is a Sabbath meal, so it, it would kind of like the Sunday meal that a family might have after church or you know, something with a little bit more formality and a little bit more importance than your everyday average meal. When you had that kind of a meal, it usually took place around a low table. Now, if you've ever seen some of the famous paintings of the Last Supper, you know, it, 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 looks, very, it looks like people sitting around a medieval, mid, medieval style table. That's because that's when the painting was made. But that's not the kind of table they sat in at that time. More accurately, what they did was they had a table only a few inches off the ground and they lay on cushions next to this table the typical approach was to lay with your, kind of toward your left, on your left elbow, and your feet coming out behind you. Not under the table, but behind you. And while leaning propped up, you would eat with your right hand. The table would be shaped like a U. And the most honored position was at the bottom of the U. That's where the host would sit. And your own place of honor within this gathering would be determined by, or to say it differently, Based on your honor, you would be invited to sit around this table in a certain arrangement, and those who were seen as having the most honor would be given the places closest to the host, and then, of course, as you proceed farther away from the host, you're less honored. And the ones who were told to sit at the very end of the U's, you know, at the top ends of the table, were the least honored in the group. It's not that where you sat made you honored. 
It was that your honor dictated where you sat. So the guests here were seeking to claim positions at the table based on honor. So the assumption is they're trying to get close to the bottom of the U. And there's probably a bit of a game associated here. You know, if you thought a lot of yourself, you got closer to the host than someone who was a little bit more willing to admit, well, I'm important, but I don't know if I'm that important, right? So, you know, there's a bit of, of self, uh, of, of exposing your own view of self in the way you decided to choose your spot. You know, you kind of got a sense of who thought the most of themselves by where they thought they deserved to sit, right? What we can ins- assume or what we can interpret from, from the fact that this is going on is that these people were beginning to make presumptions in their own mind about how much honor the host thought they had. Because after all, consider this. If you picked out a seat that you knew was not worthy of your honor, then you know you're going to be told to get up at some point, right? Well, common sense dictates you don't do that, right? So the the betting man is going to sit there and pick the spot that they think is most likely going to be the place they're going to end up or at least close enough to it, maybe they're going to push the envelope a little bit and get a spot or two closer than they might have otherwise got, but hopefully it's close enough the host will let them stay. You see the logic here, right? You're not, clearly, if you know you're the last in the room, you're not going to sit next to the host because that's just an embarrassment waiting to happen, which is what Jesus points out here, as you know. So what Jesus sees is not just the little game going on, but he sees people trying to claim honor that they may not actually deserve. Trying to claim something for themselves that isn't actually true. It's like in another setting, maybe, somebody who can sit down at their home computer and design their own high school diploma and print it out and then turn around and hang it on their wall in that very same moment. And in doing so, what are they doing? They're attempting to appropriate an honor that they couldn't obtain through honest means that they couldn't obtain through the hard work of going to high school, in this case, and finishing a high school diploma, right? So they they shortcut it, and they try to appropriate an honor by appearances that isn't actually theirs to have. That's what's actually going on if you consider what people are doing here. No matter how close these people sit to the host, the actual people, it does not, in fact, change the amount of honor they're actually due. Keep that in mind. Even if they could get away with it, so to speak, the actual amount of honor that they are actually due in that society, according to whatever rules you want to use, didn't change just because they faked it well. Just because they sat at the wrong spot and got away with it doesn't mean they're suddenly more honorable. Their actual honor didn't change, only their ability to fake it, if you will. So as Jesus teaches here, when the host finally does get around to recognizing people on the true basis of what they deserve and awarding honor based on what they truly merit, then the imposters are going to be exposed. It's inevitable. If, the, if we're talking about here a host who does his job, who is just, who doesn't shortcut. And then Jesus teaches through the parable that you're not going to be able to gain your honor through illegitimate means. You can't do that. The point here, of course, is that pride can often be the means by which we try to have a dishonest shortcut. That we are prone maybe to... Uh, hedge our bets a little bit with the way people think of us. But there is a day to come when the truth will be known. And since we know Jesus taught this parable in response to the guest's behavior, to what he just saw, he he teaches based on what he just saw going on in that room, then I think it's important here that we ask, who were these guests? We need to spend a moment on this because it completely changes our interpretation of the parable depending on who we think the guests are in view here. I mean, for example, were these just the Pharisees we saw mentioned earlier in the text? Well, clearly the Pharisees are in the room. Some of them have to be Pharisees. But 
I have a theory here about who the primary audience was, and it's not the Pharisees. In other words, they heard it. They certainly gained something of it. They're a secondary audience, if you will, but they're not the primary audience. They're not the ones that Jesus is talking to here. So, if not the Pharisees, who was that audience? Well, again, we're going to have to look at some of the details of his teaching in order to build a case, I think, for who I think it is. First, look at the setting of the parable. Jesus, in the parable, talks about a wedding feast. Well, that's really curious, because this isn't a wedding feast, is it? The, the setting of the actual event, of what he witnessed, is just a Sabbath meal. But he talks about a wedding feast as his example for the parable. If you think now for a moment that if his only purpose in teaching the parable was simply to correct dining etiquette, if his only purpose here was to correct you know, bad you know, dining etiquette in the course of a meal, then he wouldn't have had to change the setting of the meal, would he? He wouldn't have had to go to so much trouble to come up with some different setting. He would have just said, hey, when you're at a meal and you start choosing you know, blah, 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 he would have just done it that way. But he, he mentions a wedding feast. That tells me... I, and I think it's a reasonable conclusion that the setting of his parable actually has significance for us in trying to understand the meaning of the parable and to identify what he's really trying to teach here. So what do we know about wedding feasts out of Scripture? Well, a wedding feast is a common picture of the celebration that's going to be held upon Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church. And that, that picture is very, very common in Scripture. In Matthew 22 uh, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a man who gave a wedding feast for his son. In Matthew 25, Jesus refers to a day to come when the bridegroom will return for his brides, but only those who are ready and waiting for him will be taken away for the wedding. In an earlier chapter of Luke, just in fact, chapter 13 itself, we heard Jesus talking about a day when the patriarchs, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would be sitting at the Lord's table ready to feast when they enter into the kingdom. Some kind of feast takes place at that point. The Old Testament is replete with references of a wedding feast or of marriage uh, when it talks about the nation of Israel coming into its glory. So it's a fair conclusion to make that if he goes to the effort to bring that setting into the parable, then he's trying to make a point here to those who have expectation, reasonable expectation, that they are going to be a part of this wedding feast to come at the time when God ushers in his kingdom on earth. So we've got to be talking about those who are invited to participate in that feast. In other words, the church. The church is largely the group in view in Scripture for the wedding feast that's mentioned in Scripture because we're talking about the church and the church is the bride and the bride marries Christ. It's that group we're talking about. In fact, just the word church as it's used in the New Testament, it's a Greek word as you would expect out of the New Testament, ecclesia, E-K-K, L-E-S-I-A. Ecclesia. You know what it literally means translated? It's actually two Greek words stuck together. The two Greek words are uh, specifically made from or made up of invited guests. That's what the word means in Greek. Invited guests. The chosen. The elect. The ones that Jesus refers to here in this parable. So the true audience for this parable, therefore, are the disciples that were there in the room with him. And, by extension, you and I today in the church, and not the Pharisees. And it would have been very much the case to expect that the disciples would have had an invitation to this same meal. They traveled with him as a single group. Uh, Jesus had them wherever he went at this point in his ministry. Remember Jesus' words to the Pharisees, recorded elsewhere in Scripture, specifically in John's Gospel in chapter 8, 847, he says, To them, he says, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. My, the point in being is that 
Jesus never saw the Pharisees as a part of these invited guests, as men who would ever have reason to hope for a day to come where they could be in the presence of the, of the Father, right? They're, they're of a different father, their father the devil. It makes no sense to consider that if he's talking about a wedding feast and invited guests, that his audience in that moment would have been the Pharisees. But it makes every bit sense that it would have been the disciples. So what's he teaching the church, or, or specifically there, the disciples? What was he trying to teach them? Well, the parable says these guests are invited to a wedding and they're going to be seated according to honor. But it will be an honor that the host decides. Not them. The host will decide how much honor they deserve in this wedding feast to come. And in fact, if you think too much of yourselves, if you go in thinking that you deserve more honor than you really do, you're going to risk humiliation when the host reveals your true measure of honor. So what's a smart guest going to do? Smart invited guest? They're going to practice humility. They're going to leave it to the host to decide ultimately how much honor they're worth and to bestow that honor in the rightful moment, in the appointed day. And every day leading up to that moment, those invited guests are going to practice humility and assume the worst and hope for the best. And whoever humbles himself, Christ's promise will be exalted. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And passing, I want to note here that this statement is also one that I think can be used to explain the two different eternal outcomes do both believers and unbelievers. In other words, you can see that last phrase in the verses I read, he who humbles himself will be exalted, he who exalts himself will be humbled, as a uh, kind of a double entendre, a reference not only to the way uh, a believer should conduct themselves in lieu of honor on the appointed day, but it can also simply be a way of referencing how a believer is one who humbles himself before God, confesses his sin, repents of his sin, recognizes his own unworthiness before God, and for doing so, God will lift him up on the appointed day. He will be exalted in that way. Likewise, or conversely, I guess I should say, an unbeliever who remains stubbornly proud and unrepentant and thinks too much of himself in pride, imagines himself worthy of heaven of his own merit, that person will be humbled in the most dramatic way possible in the day to come. Again, the fact that those words can be seen to mean that is true enough, though I do not believe in the moment. To the audience it's being spoken to, that's its primary purpose. I believe its primary purpose in that moment was to reinforce for the disciples the need to not mimic the pride of the Pharisees. To not fall into the trap of what was at that time very common in the culture for any religious leader, which was to prop themselves up in the eyes of the people rather than to be humbled to see themselves as worthy honor, worthy of honor that truly wasn't theirs. So why does Luke place this teaching here? I've mentioned that earlier. So let's begin to try to answer that, if not fully today, at least start that a little bit. Here's what we can say to this point. From the end of chapter 13, Jesus has got to refocus his teaching now from what we said at the introduction tonight. He has to refocus his teaching from what was an offer of the kingdom now to something different. And... We said that he's confirmed Israel's rejection, so he's going to cease to offer the kingdom to them. That's no longer part of his message. He, he therefore, is no longer going to teach the message of the gospel openly to that nation. It's not for them to hear anymore. They've lost that opportunity. So he teaches it in a veiled way. He teaches kingdom principles, the gospel itself, if you will, in a veiled way for the audience to whom it is intended but to no one else. And you're going to quickly notice as we progress through these remaining chapters, as I've already said, that his teaching now to the public in any form is going to be exclusively in parables, if, if not exclusively, near exclusively in parables from this point forward. 
But yet his private teaching to the disciples is going to continue to focus more and more on their coming roles as the ambassadors for Christ. So on the one hand, while he preaches the the message publicly in a veiled way, he comes down to the disciples in a very personal way time and time again and begins to teach them basic principles of discipleship, what we would call discipleship, so that they might be ready for what is going to be a very difficult mission, the mission of spreading the good news in his absence, after his death, amidst persecution. Imagine your own uh, task if you were given the role of training 12 men who had nothing more to lean on than their experience as fishermen or tax collectors and prepare them for this kind of a role with the time he has remaining, knowing what's coming. It's supernatural. That's the only way it could happen. So here we see some of both of those kinds of teaching taking place in these early parables out of chapter 14. Not only is the parable concealing its true meaning from those hard-hearted Pharisees, but it's also conveying an important lesson to the disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the disciples were so insightful that in that moment, the whole thing was clear to them. In fact... They didn't even know he was going to die until after he was dead, right? They were, they were clueless almost to, to a man to the very end. But what did Jesus say to them before he ascended? He said, My Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come to you, and he will bring to mind all the things I have taught you. And we have specific examples, in fact, at the end of some of the Gospels, where things they had been taught earlier in the Gospel are made known to them, and they begin to see how the picture fits together. And I think that was always in Jesus' mind, that things like this, moments like this, taught in parables would be obscured to the Pharisees and even to the disciples themselves for a time, ultimately to be revealed and made clear by the power of the Holy Spirit in God's due time. And of course, to us it's the same. How many people have read a parable once, twice, three times and don't get it? But yet on a day to come, you do. It's the same process. God is wise, of course, to know when something is ready, when somebody, rather, is ready for a truth He has prepared for them, and when they're not. And one of the things I'm fond to teach on as I have opportunities is the problem that comes from those in the faith, including myself, who would want the knowledge sooner than God desires us to know it. We produce a problem. I call it the gap theory. And that is, you know something, and you know something else, and there's a piece that fits between that God hasn't given you yet, and you recognize there's a gap. You recognize, I'm missing something. I don't understand this parable or this teaching. And you want to know it so badly that you come to a conclusion. You answer it for yourself. You do your best. You assume you're right. You're not trying to come up with the wrong answer, obviously. But you don't want that gap. And so you come up with an answer. Now, you've made two mistakes. When you do that, number one, you don't have the right answer. If God hasn't given it to you, it's not the right answer. And number two, you stop looking for the right answer. That's the worst of the two sins. It's one thing to not know the truth and to have the wrong piece of information, but it's, it's another problem altogether when later God does reveal that truth to you in the time He had waiting all along and now you're not interested. I think a lot of the doctrinal issues we have in church today, uh, denominational differences, doctrinal differences, stem out of that basic human behavior, that basic sin. We fill the gap, not waiting for God. Once we have it, we're not looking for a new answer. Somebody else comes along, crosses our path with the truth, And we're not interested. In fact, we defend our perspective because who likes to admit they're wrong? And we've come very, we've become very comfortable with that answer of our own. So, you know, we really have no reason to look for a new one. I just want to challenge you to think as you study scripture that sometimes the gap is for a good reason. Learn to live with it. And I would propose that in some cases that gap will take, will will go with you to the grave. And only when we reach God in our glorified form will, will all things be made clear, we're told. And so we know that there will be some things we won't know. 
Do you think the disciples needed this lesson? Do you think maybe this is a bit harsh for Jesus to just assume that they're, they're all out for pride and, and honor, that maybe he's making too much of the moment? There's a possibility there maybe. Well, I want you to remember an argument the disciples had earlier in chapter 9 of Luke. If you don't remember this one yourself already. Remember we're told that as Jesus walked behind him were the disciples having a dispute between, among who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that? Later he says... And I love this because it just reflects the humanity of, of what it was like to be with Jesus, the, the reality of it. He turned to me and says, what were you guys talking about? Mark says that when they finally reached their destination and they got into the home they were traveling to, he, he waits till then, but then he brings it up. He says, hey, what were you guys talking about on the road? And they, they wouldn't tell him. <laughs> they were embarrassed. Nobody said anything because they knew it was wrong. They understood in their heart what they were doing. And I want you to know when, when Scripture says they were having a dispute, that means the literal term is a serious disagreement. We're not talking here about a discussion, a debate. We're talking about they held strong views and they were arguing with each other over which one had the correct view. That's how sure they were that they deserved honor. No, I deserve No, don't you remember? He gave me this. No, he said this to me. I have that honor. It was a dispute, an honest dispute, or at least, an, uh, not, if not honest, at least a, a serious dispute. And this is bound to be a real problem for any man or woman who has to enter into service to God. And if they aren't taught otherwise, they're going to be such a significant harm to the faith in some sense. They're going to end up doing more damage than good, potentially, by, by the fact that their pride is out front. Right? Pride goes before the fall. They're in such a state of self-glorification, self-worship, that there's no room left for them to give glory to God. And if we're not in the mode of giving glory to God, then He has no use for us. The other analogy I'm prone to use is a coach with a football team in the middle of a game and a player out there really working against the team. Best thing I can do for the team, bench that player. Now, he's still on the team. We're not talking here about whether or not we're children of God. That's decided at the moment of faith, and it's a once and for all decision that never changes. But that doesn't mean God, that doesn't mean God has to put up with us. You know, that doesn't mean he has to tolerate everything we might come up with, right? And that coach could bench a player. God, in a sense, can bench us in ministry and, if you think about Ananias and Sapphira, even in life, if necessary. My theory, from what I see in the text here, is that the disciples were the ones jostling for the honored positions. And Jesus saw their behavior and He intervened to teach them humility. And the teaching reflects not only this general spiritual truth about humility, but it also communicates a specific promise to believers. And this is something I, I want us to consider as we end. The promise of the parable to believers is that God the Father is the one who bestows the appropriate honor upon His invited guests on the appointed day when He conducts His wedding feast. And if we spend our time now, during these days that we have been given, days in our walk on earth, which we're supposed to be using to honor Him and to serve Him, if we use those days to honor ourselves in, in whatever way, in whatever sense we want to Think of that word. And if we go about, I guess, effectively printing our own diplomas, spiritually speaking, if we seek shortcuts so as to convince others that we have God's approval, and by a Christian doing this, I mean if we carry ourselves with piety and, and with a religiosity and with an outward appearance of Christian veneer that is not true on the inside, we're only fooling the other guests for a while. We may fool them to our grave, but you know, there is the day when the host says, here's your seat, and everyone will be there. Everybody in the faith will be there. And 
when we get to that moment and we realize that our ruse only lasted so long, that's only half of the shame. That is a moment that I, I can't say I know what the feeling will be like. But Jesus implies that it, it, it may carry a sting for some. Better to be there than not, but yet it may not be entirely a moment where we revel in what we've done. But the worst of it is that the results of our work, the honor that God is talking about here in the context of this parable, are the rewards that Paul himself talks about elsewhere in his letters, the rewards, the crowns, as he sometimes calls them, that will be awarded to believers on the basis of what we did here. The time that God has given us here is not for our own pleasure. You know, if God were, and I want you to think about this because it addresses some of the false teaching I hear sometimes in churches with regard to prosperity. Think about this. If, if it were true that God were primarily interested in our own personal pleasures here and now, then He would be best suited to just bring us home to Him now. If our personal pleasure was His first and foremost concern, then the surest way to assure it, to give us that pleasure, is to simply take us into His presence. Because nothing could equal that pleasure. Nothing on this earth. He could grant us infinitely greater pleasure in His presence than He could ever do possibly in this life. So it's self-evident by the fact that we have life on this world to live after faith that His first interest in our life is not our own personal pleasure. It has to be something greater. And I believe it's that He's given us grace and granted us the privilege of serving Him in this world so that we can help Him build His kingdom. And in the... And in the willingness and in the sacrifice we're willing to take to do that, He is pleased to grant us the honor we're due, but it comes on an appointed day. It doesn't necessarily follow us in this day. Which explains why missionaries might be murdered. And yet when we see them on that day, they'll be a lot closer to the you than we might be. And the more loyal the servant, as some of the other parables you may know say, the greater the honor on that day. He who is faithful with a little will be trusted with more, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 16. And we'll study that more when we get there. And just to emphasize this point ever, even further, I want, to, I want you to just end with three more verses out of Luke 14. Look at 14, 12 through 14, uh, verses 12 through 14. He went on to say to the one who had invited him. Now he's speaking to the host now. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and, the, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus moves from talking to the guests, which I, I believe fairly are the disciples, to talking to the host of this dinner. Now, we don't know who the host is. It could very easily have been another Pharisee, and that would not have been inconsistent with the fact that the Pharisees there were trying to attack him. In other words, he could rightly praise this man, though he might have been a Pharisee, if this man were a converted believer, which is very possible. The fact that he may still be in the Pharisaical role doesn't preclude the possibility that this particular man actually had an honest heart and a desire not to persecute Jesus, but to be a follower but, of course, in that role, he probably would have had to keep that faith quiet to some extent. He probably was a conflicted person. That's an assumption we have to make out of Scripture. We don't need to actually decide that. I just want to point out the fact that it's not inconceivable that the man he's talking to here is a believer, which is why he would say things to him about the resurrection of the righteous, implying a promise to this man that he will be there. But moving on. 
He advises the host that his honor will be measured by who he shows grace to. And he says, don't invite those who have the means to repay you. In other words, he says, select your guests not on the basis of their honor. Not on the basis of this honor. Don't select men and women, in fact, who are worthy of invitation. Because to do so gains you no credit. Now, I want you to understand what he's teaching here, because there's a very important spiritual issue being built here that's not immediately apparent, I think. He says that a host's own glory is in part based on who he invites. But it's counter to the thinking of men. It's counter to the way you and I might assume it to be. You might assume that a host gains more glory by inviting more honored people. And he's saying, no, it's the other way around. It's the other way around. If you invite those who deserve an invitation, you're only doing the expected thing. You're inviting the natural people you should invite. How could the host get credit for doing what is natural or what is expected? Why would the host get any extra credit in the eyes of, uh, of whomever? Because they picked the natural people, the expected people. That's like saying when Jesus says, why do you love your friends and hate your enemies? Even the Gentiles do that. That's the natural thing. That's the expected thing. Don't expect a lot of credit for that. When you love your enemies, and uh, unlike the rest of the world, well then, yes, you have reason to expect some credit. It's the same principle being espoused here. The host should strive to pick those who least deserve the invitation. The ones who could, could never hope to do anything to repay the host by their own hand. And by favoring those who could never earn that favor, the host receives much greater reward at the resurrection of the righteous. There's a wonderful double meaning here that I need to explain to you. First, there's just the simple message to us today, for example, to the disciples in the moment, to the host, if we presume he was a believer, that honor from God will be greatest to us when we act out of a heart of service rather than a heart of selfishness. When we look to serve others in their need rather than serve our own aggrandizement, our own honor. Okay, That's a simple message. If we show mercy and charity to the least fortunate, those who could never hope to give us any personal reward in this life, then we're trusting God for that reward. We're trusting God to make us whole, if you will. When we come into His presence, we'll experience a richer payday of eternal rewards for having given that service. That's a simple message. I say simple because I'm hoping that's clear enough without a lot of explanation. But there's a second meaning here, and this is the far more significant one. Remember that we said that at a wedding feast, the host, and I'm talking now about the literal wedding feast of the Bride of Christ, marrying Christ after our rapture. Who will be the host in that moment? God the Father. His Son, He's hosting this party for, if you will, this feast. So in the real event to come, the host is the Father. And the Father's own glory, God's glory, is going to be the point of all that has happened and will happen. The whole reason the earth exists and all that's in it and the whole plan of of the history of the world that we're now in, in the middle of, it all exists for His glory. All of it. Therefore, Jesus is explaining here why it is that God chooses the least of the world to call His children. Remember Paul's words in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians? Let me read you a few verses. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, and hear these words as if He's speaking to you, That not many were wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. I don't see any kings in here. Queens. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast. But by His doing, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see the point of the parable now at that higher spiritual plane? The Father's own glory will be magnified on that day of the feast when you and I take our place, our appointed place of honor, whatever way, whichever one we get, around that table. You know what we're going to see as we look around the sea of faces that must sit around what would have to be a huge table? The least, the despised, the lame, the, the ones the world looks down on. That's who's going to be around that table. Now, how much glory does it bring the Father that he would choose to reach out in mercy and grace to that crowd versus whom he had to choose from elsewise in the world. It's the same principle. He's saying, just as he says in Scripture elsewhere, be like your Father is in heaven. Just as your Father shows mercy in that way to the least should be the way you likewise, as a host to a party, for example, should honor others in grace. Just as your Father, the host of heaven, will receive greater glory for having favored the unworthy, so you also will receive greater glory for having served the least deserved in the world. That is the basic message he's giving through this parable to the disciples, and I think to us today. Knowing we were the least, we have no cause for pride. Knowing we had no opportunity to work our way to heaven, we have no reason to glory, except in his work, those who would boast, boast in the Lord, is the message. Father, I give you all the glory and all the honor that is richly yours. First and foremost, Father, for the teaching from your word, where that teaching, Father, has been truthful. I pray you would magnify it in the hearts of those who've heard it, that you would claim the credit as you so richly deserve, and that you would use it, Father, to increase your glory on this earth. And where, Father, it may have been wrong in some respect, I, I rest upon your power, Father, through the Holy Spirit, to remove that teaching from the hearts and minds of those who have heard it and to correct it. Father, I also thank you for the work of those who have brought us food and drink and for the time and fellowship that will come. And Father, for the intentions on the hearts of, of those in here who we may not know, but we know you do. We lift those up to you, Father. We trust in you to answer those needs in the right way, the way that is good. And we ask, Father, that the message tonight in humility... In service, a message, Father, to know what is good and to do good. I pray, Father, that message would stimulate us to good works in the week to come so that through those works your glory might be magnified and the truth might be spread. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.